0: My name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Today my guest is Frank Ostaseski. Frank, as many of you know, is a Buddhist teacher and a pioneer and leader in the field of -of end-of-life care. He founded the first Zen Hospice Project in 1987 and guided that for almost 20 years, and subsequently then founded the Meta Institute, where he's trained literally hundreds of people in regard to end-of-life care. Frank has dedicated his life to service, and it's been a fusion of spiritual insights and practical social action in manifesting, caring for the homeless, serving on the early front lines of the AIDS epidemic, lobbying Congress, teaching meditation, and most daunting, raising his four children. He is also the author of The Five Invitations, Discovering What Death Can Teach Us About Living Fully. Thank you again for being with us today, and I hope you enjoy our program. Well, Frank, it's so great to see you. How are you doing?
1: Lovely to see you too. Nice to to be with you. And um, I'm okay. You know, like everybody else, I'm finding my way through the pandemic and all the other crises that seem to be facing us.
0: One of the things I like to do when I start chatting with people, whether it's in person or uh, via this uh, platform, is to understand how somebody got to where they are today. You know, a person's past imbues their future often. And I know you founded the Zen Hospice Center, was it in 87? Yes, 1987.
1: It was a project of the San Francisco Zen Center. And um, it was a simple idea. Let's put together people who are cultivating uh, the listening mind or the listening heart, we could say, in meditation, together with people who really needed to be heard at least once, folks who were dying.
0: Before that, even though, what brought you to the San Francisco Zen Center?
1: Oh, that's a longer story. Um <laughs> Hopefully, I'm sure an interesting one. For most of us, what is it that brings us to spiritual practice? What is it that brings us to studying the inner life? Usually, it's some kind of discontent, some form of suffering, we could say, if that's a big word. And so I tried everything else, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and none of it seemed to work really well for me. So I found meditation, and it just fit. It It made sense to me. It didn't ask me to believe anything. It asked me to trust my own direct experience. Buddhist practice was has been a strong influence in my life since I my late teens yeah
0: wow and in that initial search did it lead you to the Zen Center in San Francisco or what is the path before because you said you were I think in your teens and you know uh, there are very few teens I know a few actually who've ended up going to India, uh, et cetera, et cetera. What what was your path? I was one of those. Um,
1: (laughs) We uh, called ourselves Dharma bums in those days. And, um, you know, we were seekers, you know, for whatever that's worth. And I traveled for about a year in Southeast Asia and and India, uh, Nepal, of course. And there I really was exposed to some extraordinary teachers, and it got my attention. And when I came back to the States, I continued to pursue it. Actually, with Jack and Joseph.
0: Oh, really? So you must have been then connected to Sharon. Yes, of course. Yes. Ah, ah. So we just had this discussion actually the other day about starting the uh, Insight Meditation Society uh, in Massachusetts. Yeah, it was,
1: you know, when you think about it now, they were just kids. They were mid to late twenties. You know, like, I got some curtains, let's have a show. You know, it was kind of a little bit like that. I got a barn, let's make it work. So, um, I was really impressed when I think back to how young
0: they were, how brave they were also. No, it's it's really, in some ways, it's hard to imagine. I mean, I know that kids go on programs in other countries. But for some reason, back in the, I assume that's in the late 80s or late 70s, early 80s? For me? Yeah. Oh, even earlier, uh, in the early 70s, yeah. Yeah, wow. And, uh, you know, that seems like uh, a big trek. Obviously, you don't have cell phones, you don't have the internet, and you're sort of on your own out there.
1: In those days, that was the way it was. But, you know, I think people are still taking adventures, both internal and external adventures. And, um You know, that's the way of humanity, I think, to try and discover what is it that has meaning and purpose in our lives.
0: It's interesting because I think oftentimes seekers really end up being the most informed uh, in, in my limited experience, because what happens is, you know, some people will pick one thing immediately and that's the only thing and it has this hold on them and that's all they believe. They never look at anything else. They aren't open to anything else. And, uh, you know, in some ways, I I think it's uh, uh, a tragedy, actually.
1: Yeah, I do, too, actually. You know, when, when I was coming up in practice, Jim, there was a metaphor that was used. Don't dig too many holes. You'll never strike water or never strike oil. The idea there was to get focused and don't be jumping around. But I think actually it's really useful to explore. The thing I would add here is that I've since learned that seeking is kind of a bad deal. You know, seeking is always having us looking outside ourselves for something. It has us always trying to find the solution elsewhere. And eventually, in practice and in life, I think in our maturity, seeking doesn't end by finding. It ends. It simply ceases. You know, we stop looking outside ourselves for the answers, and uh, we come home to ourselves.
0: Well, I think that's actually uh, very profound, which I think people don't realize, because I know uh, a number of, we can call them seekers, who it's a never-ending quest to find something outside themselves that fulfills them. But the way I was using it was in the context of you look around and hopefully you realize that, number one, essentially all of these practices relate to compassion, love, acceptance, non-judgment. And uh, then you find one that resonates with you. But in the best case scenario, of course, you remain open to all experiences and you are accepting and non-judgmental to other people's experiences or what they choose to believe. Yeah. I mean, you know,
1: ignorance for me is not not knowing, you know, ignorance, unfortunately, is something else. I think it's that we know something, but it's the wrong thing, and then we insist on it. And there's a great deal of that happening in the world today, A kind of, you know, this creating a great deal of division and uh, partisanship, if, if you will. You know, not knowing is a kind of open mind, right? It's a curious mind, a mind of discovery. And that, I think, is the kind of seeking you're speaking of. Exactly. A, a sense of wonder, actually. A sense of wonder and, and uh, discovery. Joy. I think that's an aspect of it. You know, I've been um, taking these little wonder walks with my five-year-old granddaughter. And on the wonder walks, I bring a pair of binoculars and a magnifying glass. And we stop and we pick up some, you know, sand and we look at it. And boy, it looks like boulders under a magnifying glass. And uh, or we look at the, you know, bark on a redwood tree. And it's quite remarkable under a magnifying glass. And I'm finding going with her, my own sense of awe and wonder really uh, are excited. Yeah, excited.
0: Yeah, I think uh, that type of openness and sort of willingness to look at different parts of the world or different things in the world really is extraordinarily of great value in sort of, I guess I would say even feeling human. Yeah
1: that's a beautiful way to say it
0: you know in my work and
1: being with people who are dying i have a lot of expertise a lot of skills that i've developed over the years but when i walk into a room where someone is dying i have to walk in with an open mind i have to see what their needs are and what will actually serve them not impose upon them some agenda or some idea that i have about their dying process that's another place where that sense of wonder really shows up
0: well you know it's interesting you say that because in my own world as a physician you'll see physicians who bring their personal agenda or beliefs into the room and in some ways manipulate or force a patient to accept their choice. And uh, obviously, I think that's a very bad practice because the goal, and whether it's on, if you want to say, your end of things or my end of things, (laughs) you know, is to be with the person and let them be who they are and try to just simply be with them and accept them. And then if they ask for options, you can discuss them, hopefully in a non-judgmental, dispassionate way, and then let them choose without trying to shame someone or make them feel guilty about a decision.
1: Yeah, that's beautifully said. You know, the, old, the other way, the old style of medicine, was that somebody else had all the answers, right? The physician or the clinician had all the answers. You know, I have a lot of tools, like you do, that I've developed over the years, and I'm very grateful for them. I'm really happy that I have them. But when I you know, walk into a room, I don't set my toolbox down between myself and the person I'm serving. You know, one of us is sure to trip over it, right? The patient.
0: <laughs> exactly. I have
1: tools, but I don't lead with my tools. I lead with my humanity. And then when I need a tool, it's there. I can reach in my back pocket and get it. But I think the most important thing is to meet human to human, heart to heart, soul to soul, so to speak, you know? And that, that for me has always been the ground of practice. You know, that's where, you know, mindfulness practice, Buddhist practice can really inform our actions in the world, and the way we conduct our relationships.
0: No, I I think that's uh, very, very true. Um, In some ways, although um, The Five Invitations is about death, it so much informs us about life. I tell people that my first decade in practice was trying to save lives, but the last uh, decade has been focused more on understanding what makes somebody truly live. So many physicians, sadly, uh, run away from death, you know, because especially in Western practice, you know, losing a patient to a condition you can't influence is a failure. Therefore, many people feel that if a patient's going to die, they've failed, and then they want to get as far away as possible. Where my own practice, even though I'm a neurosurgeon, and that, this may seem contrary to what most people believe about neurosurgery, <laughs> is I actually interact with them and continue to see them as much as I can uh, simply to give them solace and anything I can do to be helpful. Uh, and I think, that, frankly, that's a much more healthy approach than running away from what you perceive as your failures.
1: Yeah, well said, Tim. And, and the people who you serve are fortunate to have you because you hold that particular view. Dying is much more than a medical event, right? You, you know that. And uh, I think we ought to stop treating it as if that's what it, all it was. I think when we do that, we, we rob it in a way of its holy significance. For me, anyhow, the experience of dying, being with dying, is much more about relationships. It's what you were just talking about. You know, it's our relationship to the people who care for us, of course, or to God or whatever image of ultimate kindness we hold in our life, to our own suffering. And so for me, being with dying is a lot about learning how to conduct relationship. And and I think that relationship needs to be characterized by a few things. One of those is mastery, like you have. You know, believe me, if I had a condition that would require your services, I want your mastery, but that won't be enough. I also need somebody to help me understand the meaning of what I'm going through, you know, what its value and purpose is in my life. That's, that's needed too. If we keep going, there's another dimension, which is the mystery of all of this. You know, if I'm in the dying process, what's this about? this experience of mystery here. And so I need someone like you who can travel with me in all those territories, you know?
0: No, I appreciate that. And it's interesting because I tell our residents that while certainly mastery of being a neurosurgeon is one thing, many of the successes that I've experienced with patients have more to do with my interaction with them as a human being and not so much the surgery part. Now, many people find that hard to believe, but when you're with somebody, you know they're frightened, they're afraid of what might happen, they're afraid of being separated ultimately from their loved ones, and they're terrified. And if you can take the time to calm them, to make them feel comfortable, to make them feel not afraid, I mean, frankly, it has a huge, huge determinant on how a patient ultimately does.
1: How, how do you do that, Tim? Well, I'm curious about what, what you do.
0: <laughs> this is my interview. <laughs> like what happens in that exchange? Uh, well, first of all, uh, as an example, if someone sees me in the office about a condition, of course, they're very anxious about it. So I'm not trying to put this as sort of fake it till you make it. It's just how I am. But, uh, uh you know, you're truly with them, you're present with them. I mean, I can't tell you the number of patients who've said to me, you know, I was trying to tell the doctor about this or that and all they did, they just kept typing in the computer and never looked at me. How can you have an interaction with another human being and make them feel that you're truly listening if you're typing as a time saver and just putting down critical points and not really truly listening? Because when you're truly listening, there's a lot more that's going on than you think. And I'll give you actually a very quick example. I had a young lady who came to see me and she had a, a disc bulge, which you probably know if it's in your lower back can cause leg pain and it can be quite debilitating. And this was a woman, her her 20s, she sort of had a disheveled appearance, overweight. And I looked at her films and she really had the most minimal bulge there is And she was actually scheduled for surgery and came to see me as a second opinion. And just looking at her and then actually noticing her wrists where she had slashed herself and was hurting herself, it was obvious to me there was something else going on here. It wasn't this disc. There was something much deeper. And then I asked her about other symptoms. And uh, one of those was something called dyspareunia, which is pain with sex. And this led me to ask her a few questions. And one of those questions was, tell me about your life growing up. Her parents got divorced when she was 12. Then her mother had a boyfriend and uh, basically he molested her. So the tragedy of that is that this poor young lady would have gone and had this back surgery, which would have done absolutely nothing for her. And what I ended up doing was sending her to an adolescent psychiatrist. And interestingly, in my conversation with her, uh, she said, you know, no one has ever asked me that question before. So send her to this psychiatrist, six months later, she comes back, she's lost weight, she cares for herself, she has no pain, smile on her face, and frankly, simply from listening. And that's, I think, the difference. You know, I don't use healthcare extenders or, you know, I'm not typing while somebody's talking to me. I am actually sitting there with them. So I think that's an important thing. And, of course, in any relationship, it has to do with connection, leaning forward towards the person, touching them. All of these things are, I think, critically important in terms of caring for somebody. And what you find is when you actually do all of that, it profoundly changes things. At least that's been uh, my experience.
1: Beautiful. Just beautiful. And, 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 and as you're sharing this story, I can hear the tenderness in your voice and the, even the trembling in your voice as you recall this. So clearly it had a, a significant impact on you too. That, that's the way of heart-to-heart relationships, right? They, there's a mutual benefit. We're both, uh, we're both in the process together. We're not the expert over here, and they are the poor unfortunate one, and we're the good guy on the white horse.
0: No, I think that's exactly right. I, I think that's the failure, right? Where people uh, perceive themselves from this elevated position, telling somebody something versus uh, being with them at an equal level.
1: Well, what's clear in the story and, and in your response to the story, in the telling of it is that you, your own vulnerability is part of that mix as well. And I think that when we are comfortable in our vulnerability, others recognize that and we become a more trustworthy refuge for them. Often, I think we imagine that our job is to make people feel safe. And that's really good if you can do it, but you can't always do it. You know, sometimes when people are dying, it doesn't feel safe to them. So I can't convince them of that. All I can do is be as you suggested earlier, a non-judgmental, loving, compassionate presence who's curious and vulnerable. I allow myself, um, when I'm working with another people, to explore my own grief and my own fear. You know, that's what allows me to build an empathetic bridge from from my experience to theirs and to meet them in some useful way.
0: You know, I think, sadly, in many instances, um, that's not present in medicine especially in the context of, you know, so many demands on physicians' times and the electronic medical record, which is very distracting. Uh, I won't bore you with all of that, but, you know, it, it leads to um, a lot of unhappiness. There's this idea that uh, physicians have a moral injury because, you know, they want to do the right thing, but the nature of the environment they're in limits what they're able to do. And some of them become horribly unhappy. Even if you look at, as an example, at Stanford, you see, because they, uh, you know, are very interested in the mental health of the students and faculty and uh, uh, residents and fellows, and there are huge numbers of uh, levels of unhappiness and, and despair, and because for many of these people, it's not what they signed up for, which is unfortunately very, very sad.
1: Yeah. And this is this kind of moral distress that you're, you're speaking to. It's rampant, unfortunately, in healthcare these days. You know, this phenomenon where someone knows what the right action is to do, but they feel constrained or powerless to take that action. Right. The challenge that I'm finding as I work with people and I've been doing a lot of work recently during the pandemic with ER docs and staffs and, you know, first responders. It's hard right now. It's really tiring. Right. And they're not just emotionally tired sometimes or physically tired. There's a kind of moral exhaustion this year sometimes because they can't always do what they know is the right thing to do. And one of the challenges that I'm really worried about in our healthcare system is how this kind of residue builds up, right? And there is this kind of thickening that occurs. And then there's this possibility of a kind of crescendo where the effect of that moral distress and the continuous need like we have in the pandemic create this insensitivity which causes clinicians to shut down and to be less concerned about the ethical and moral complications of care and so um that's that's the real challenge of that and it's not just an individual problem it's a system problem right
0: no, I think you're exactly right and it it's unfortunate because obviously many people go into the caring professions to care the other side of it many of those people are damaged people themselves and what I mean by that is when someone has suffered uh, oftentimes they think that by going into the health care uh, profession that that will decrease their own amount of suffering or the pain that they've experienced by giving to others. And uh, unfortunately, it leads them not giving to themselves or, or practicing self-care.
1: Yeah, boy, you know, you, you asked me, uh, how did I get here? You know, basically. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, if I'm honest, Jim, I have to say that, you know, my initial foray into working with people who are dying it came as a reway, or as a, an attempt rather to avoid my own suffering, you know to, to move away from the pain in my life which had was so devastating for me. But there's some juncture in the process and it sounds like you've found that for yourself where we have to turn toward what it is that hurts, turn toward the wound or the you know the pain in some way and be with it. And that's what enables us to become the, you know, the classical wounded healer, right? The one who dives deep into the wounds and finds something useful there that they can offer as a gift to others. If we don't do that, right, if we come into healthcare with all this wounding and we haven't looked, then we become wounding healers. You know, we, we project our pain and suffering onto others or we do something to them to try and alleviate our personal distress.
0: No, I think that's right. And, and, you know, it's interesting to look at uh, people who go into these types of areas and understand, though, that uh, many of them are wounded people. I think the greatest gift, and in some ways it's maybe the journey you've been on, is sort of trying to get a better understanding those injuries, how they affected you, how to process them, and how to feel comfortable with who you are.
1: Yeah, I don't know any humans that haven't been wounded. <laughs> you know, I mean, all of us have got something, and it's not like they all get resolved and healed. We had a mutual friend, Ram Das, and, and you know, dear, dear friend, and, and he and I were at breakfast one morning, and he said to me, you know, well, everything I've done, all the psychology, all the LSD, all the guru teaching, being with my guru, I haven't gotten rid of one single neurosis <laughs> after all these years. And I thought it was really, I mean, he always was wonderful at speaking and teaching from his mistakes. And I thought that was really great, you know, that these things don't necessarily go away, but our relationship to them can shift and they don't have us by
0: the throat in quite the same way. Well, I think that in some ways uh, is the issue of the shadow Yeah. where, and and I think actually this is a cause of suffering because, many times people have parts of themselves they're very unhappy with they're ashamed of they wish wasn't part of them and what they do is they try to push it aside and of course that never helps because especially when you're vulnerable it suddenly pops out and whether it's an addiction or some other uh, negative type of practice then it creates more shame and i think that uh when you accept who you are and the shadow and understand it's never going to go away like neurosis, but you uh, sort of make peace with that reality. And you, in the face of all of that still feel you're worthy of love.
1: Yeah. Well, that's, that's last phrase, you know, that's the clincher, isn't it really? And, you know, I I don't know about you, but I, you know, I've faced life-threatening illness myself a number of times now and you know, I certainly, as I mentioned earlier, grew up with my own fair share of pain. And I think that these things can cause us to feel terribly unlovable. You know, the, the, the very process of illness can do that. I'm sure you've seen it in the patients that you've served, that there's this feeling that comes with it. We feel like the body's betraying us in some way, or that we did something to bring this on us, or some other new age kind of thinking. And that we feel unlovable and I know this has happened for me. And you know, I, I had a heart attack a few years ago while I was teaching a group of docs and nurses, a <laughs> repeat on compassion. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, I went through big deal, triple bypass surgery, it's, you know, you know it, it's very invasive, traumatic. When I came home to recover, I felt this experience of not being lovable. And I didn't know if my life was gonna be relevant anymore. I didn't know if I'd be able to do, to teach, to do the things that I love to do. And I was fortunate. I had people around me who were soul friends, I'll call them. And what they did was they just loved me. They loved me so much until I could love myself again. And that was incredibly useful and, and and healing for me, you know, that sometimes we do need that input from outside ourselves. We do need to be reminded of our loveliness, as Galwood Cannell writes in that beautiful poem. You know, so that's my two cents, you know, love people until they can love themselves again.
0: Yeah, you know, it's interesting, uh, and I'm sure you probably experienced, no matter what level of accomplishment or wealth, etc., People still carry this baggage of uh, the sense that they're not worthy of of love. So many people can't even accept a compliment. That's true. You know, they sit there and they go, I don't really deserve it. I'm really not that good, et cetera, et cetera. And many people actually even feel like imposters in their job, that they're going to find out about me, that I'm not good enough, or I really don't know what I'm doing, or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, it's this idea, uh, which I think translates into self-compassion, is uh, really critically important.
1: Oh boy, we are fragile beings. You know, we are. it breaks my heart as I hear you say that because I know in my own life this has been true and, I, and I've certainly seen it in the lives of many other people that I've gotten to spend time with. You know, some of this feels like, and, and I don't want to make a diagnosis here, but you know, so often in the dying process, what happens, the positive thing that happens is that people discover themselves to be much more than the small separate self they had taken themselves to be. And it's not like they get religion necessarily, they just feel themselves as part of something larger that also includes themselves. That's a way to think about it, you know? And you know, this this isn't a fantasy or you know, some kind of bypass around the suffering that's also there. But I see regular people do this all the time. And if it happens in the time of dying, if that learning is available to us then, it's available to us now. And we don't have to wait until the time of our dying to learn the lessons it has to teach.
0: Well, I think this is, uh, in, so, in some ways, part of uh, your five invitations, right? You, you don't wait thinking that there's something magical or that you're going to learn something or that you're going to be different. You know, as Ram Das said, he said, I still have all these neuroses even though I've been on this path I've been on. I think the other uh, comment, and it's interesting you use the term uh, fragile, you know, I always say, um, we are all uh, frail, fragile human beings, many who carry shame of our experiences growing up. And these are sort of wounds of our hearts. And um, unfortunately, You know, most of the events in our lives which cause us pain are fairly superficial and pass with time. But these wounds of the heart are very, very deep and they continue to cause pain throughout people's lives. And uh, until you can understand that and realize that, and also understand, uh, I think, that you can heal them, it takes, I think, a fair amount of introspection and also uh, acceptance of the reality of your existence and understanding that even with all of your flaws and failings, you're an extraordinary human being who has uh, incredible gifts to give people. I think so few people really believe that.
1: Yeah, we've been taught out of it. We've been conditioned out of it. You know, we've become so fixated on our value being about what we've done or what we can do instead of just the exquisiteness of being a human being with a heart, you know, you know, when I'm with folks who are dying, they often look back on their lives again to look and see what's been meaningful, what's been valuable in this life. You know, did I, did I screw it up? And and the two questions that are inevitable in that process are Am I loved? And did I love well? You know? And if those are the two most important questions at the end of our life, well, aren't they the two most important questions now? And, and shouldn't we live into them now? And uh, love as hard as we possibly can? I don't know, that seems right to me. Yeah.
0: No, I think you're right. You know, it's interesting. I, I, hopefully you'll see the analogy here. <laughs> you know, when we're younger we desire control. Uh, We want things to be a, you know, a a perfect uh, picture, right? Like even your house, you know, you, well, I need this piece of furniture and this has to sit there. And what's fascinating is as you get older and older and older, you realize none of that's important whatsoever. And the decisions that you thought were so incredibly important at the time were nothing. And uh, that if you can let go of that sense of control or this desire to have sort of power over your domain, if you will, actually life becomes much more painless. And when you let go of that, I think it's much more easy for people to love you.
1: Beautiful. Beautifully said. I I think I just want to ask you questions here because,
0: uh, (laughs) you know,
1: it's just, you know, you're speaking from your own maturity, right? And, and and obviously you're encounters with many people. I don't have many methodologies, Jim, but you know, people always ask me, well, how should we do a life review or how should we help people look back on their life? And and I think when we look back, we tend to look back critically. And I think there it's useful not to be Pollyanna, but to emphasize the positive, you know, to emphasize the unique way that we have gone through this life. Each of us have this extraordinary uniqueness to us. It doesn't mean we're special, more special than someone else, but, you know, every iris is different, right? Every voice print is different. Every thumbprint is different. Yeah.
0: No, I think uh, that's really true. And, you know, even in my own life, you know, I have to try to be careful not to be judgmental, which I have a tendency to do sometimes, and sometimes dismissive. One of the fascinating gifts I've been given Is to be reminded that every person actually has an incredible story if you take the time to listen to them and have had unique experiences, profound experiences, meaningful experiences, and sometimes extraordinary experiences. And and it's given them. Sometimes it's caused pain. Sometimes they've made the wrong decisions. But each life is this you know glorious event, hopefully uh, for them. But that. um, gives them self-worth if they listen to the parts of it where they've been their best selves. And uh, you know nobody can be their best selves uh, 24-7, but if uh, you can look back at your life and see those points, uh, uh, I think that's very, very helpful. Let me ask you a question, though, which I've had my own experience with. I'd be interested on in your take on it. I've been with people who are dying, who are frankly not nice human beings. They're just, they're selfish, they're self-centered, they try to be very controlling. It's been fascinating to me because these are the people who invariably are trying to crawl, uh, claw themselves back uh, and deny that they're going uh, to pass. And uh, what has your experience been? Or maybe you've never had one of those people, but I certainly have. (laughs)
1: But sure, you know, I mean, at, when I we started the Zen Hospice Project back in the early, in the mid-80s, we worked mostly with people who lived on the streets of San Francisco. And so, you know, they came to us with triple diagnosing, often some life-threatening illness, usually some mental illness, often an addiction of one kind or another, with little or no family support or financial support. And so they were pretty troubled when they arrived at our doors. And I always felt like, our, our work was just to meet them where they are. You know, we didn't have any missionary zeal and any of that. This guy just sprang to mind as you were speaking about. He was a tough character, really a you know curmudgeon, kind of nasty a lot of the time. And um, whenever a volunteer or a staff member would walk into his room, he would say, "Get the hell out of here! I'm sick of you people." And, you know, terrify the volunteers and the staff. And they would come to me and they say, you got to go talk to this guy. Uh, You know, he's yelling at everybody. And I said, I'm not going to talk to him. He scares me, you know. But um, I said, okay, I'm the boss. I got to go there. So I went up to his room. And I have this strange little ritual I do when I go into a room. I look and see where are the hinges on the door? Are they on the right side or on the left side? If the hinges are on the right side, I step in with my right foot. If the hinges are on the left, I step them with my left foot. Now, this could be considered an act of mindfulness or obsessive compulsive disorder. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure either. (laughs) But what it does is it it causes me to be present, to recognize I'm crossing a threshold. I'm going into a new place where there are new rules. And, um, you know, like Susan Sontag talked about going into the land of the ill. And I walk into this place and um, he starts screaming at me. so I did the one intervention that I know almost always works. I sit down. Because usually when I sit down in the chair, it's harder to run away. (laughs) So I sit down there in the chair, you know, next to his bed, the end of his bed. And he's, you know, screaming at me, literally at the top of his voice. And I could feel this kind of fear in my chest and belly. So then I settle, feel my feet on the ground, and feel my breath. And then I said, you know, Joseph, take a breath. You know, I just yelled at him like that, take a breath. And he looked at me like I was crazy. And I said, come on, one big inhale. And he breathed in, I said, don't forget to breathe out. And he breathed out. And then he kept, you know, we kept doing it together for a while. And I, I noticed he wasn't screaming so much when we did this. So I thought we we're making progress. I could feel my feet on the floor and I felt good to be on the floor, I felt grounded. So I did this really simple thing. I just reached under the covers of his bed and I just held his foot the bottom of the bed you know it felt good for me and maybe it'll feel good for him and there was this new kind of contact and then I said to him you know so many people around here really love you and he said yeah who like that and I knew we were in a different realm now we weren't just in the what happened 10 minutes ago realm so I took a risk and I said your mother And that's the love we're always looking for, you know, that's that first face of God that we've all known. And he just looked at me and he said, oh, I hope so. I said, oh, I'm sure, I'm sure. And now we're into an entirely different discussion, Jim, you know, this curmudgeon guy, you know, you know, 15 minutes later, he was back screaming again. We didn't change that, his personality, but we found a way to meet and didn't let the in this case, this personality be such a stumbling block, such an obstacle that we couldn't find some way to, to connect, you know, human to human, heart to heart. Yeah. I've been with all kinds of people and, and I don't mean, I'm not, I'm not romantic about dying. This is the hardest work we will ever do. And I'm not romantic about how people meet their dying. As you say, some leave skid marks, you know, dragging their heel out the door. This is the thing. The process of dying, the very process of dying, is actually conducive. It's actually helpful to our waking up. It has about it certain conditions, which are supports, actually. You know, all the ways we've defined ourselves. I'm a mother, I'm a father, I'm a doc, I'm a Buddhist teacher, whatever it is, they're all either stripped away by illness or they're gracefully given up, but all those roles, all those identities go now, who are we? I think we get down to something much more essential, fundamental, we could say. And that becomes a meeting place. And uh, people often discover there something about themselves that they didn't know before. And they find resources they couldn't have imagined would be available to them. And this is not because of some religious or even spiritual practice. It's because they came in contact with something true about themselves.
0: Yeah, I think, uh, as you point out, with Joseph, I mean, I I think, you know, he was terrified and that manifested by anger, uh, fear and trying to control the situation and also anger about him not being in charge. And when you can break through that, you know, magical things can happen. It's interesting, earlier you were talking about we carry these projections of ourselves. And uh, I've been blessed to spend time with the Dalai Lama, uh, as you have. And uh, uh, also, I don't know if you know Amma the Hugging Saint. Yes, Yeah, so she's actually a friend of mine. But, you know, people say, what's it like to be in their presence? And I, I say, you know, the extraordinary thing that we forget is how to or what it feels like to be with someone who gives you unconditional love and is completely non-judgmental and embraces you and it's you know one of the most extraordinary expen- experiences and you can see why so many people you know follow these people because they get that uh, experience from them and i have to say for myself stanford's a very competitive environment and, you know, people carry these credentials around of who they are and what they want people to see them as, and I've never been particularly good at that. But when you're able to just let all of that go, and it's just you with this person who has this ability to just give you this gift of unconditional love and and, and non judgment. Uh, it's really quite uh, extraordinary. I I was telling someone that uh, I was with Amma one time and I was on stage with her and sitting with her holding her hand. And, you know, it was amazing watching you because you just had this big smile on your face and you were like just incredibly joyful. And it was amazing. And I think as much as people don't realize they have that gift, everyone has that gift to give to another person. And I think in some ways, that's what we're talking about is being this authentic person who doesn't judge, accepts you for who you are. That's all that you need to do.
1: Yeah. It's curious to me that we've made love so special, (laughs) you know, that we've made it something other than who we are, actually. You know, there's a story in my book that I share with you. I like it. it. When I was young, it was a chaotic household, and there was a lot of abuse and of all kinds and lots of violence. It wasn't a safe environment as a kid and not a loving environment, and often. Anyway, when I was young, when I was late teens, I, I became a swimming teacher in a school for severely disabled kids. I worked with kids with, you know, spina bifida muscular dystrophy and cerebral palsy and such. And I was a swimming teacher there was this one girl about 16 you know she would have been the beauty queen in her high school she was in this special school because of her spina bifida and she wouldn't come to the pool but she liked to wheel out in the wheelchair and make wisecracks and flirt with the lifeguard you know and uh i would encourage her i say you know come on in the pool she wouldn't have any part of it she was just too self-conscious but every day Every time she came, I would remind her of her beauty, her internal beauty, her external beauty, her brave, her courage, her intelligence. You know, sometimes you can't just tell someone they're lovely. You have to show them that they're lovely. And one day, I was in the pool, and out came this young girl in her turquoise blue bathing suit, you know, and she put her braces up on the pool took off her braces and orthopedic shoes and she called me forward and she leapt into my arms like a seven-year-old and it was just beautiful you know and I was grateful to be with her and and to you know have gained her confidence but for me it had a benefit it it taught me to love actually Jim You know, I always thought love would come to me and rescue me, you know, someone would come, you know, but no one ever came. And really what happened in that work, that service work, was that love came through me, you know, it showed me how to love by being with others. And that's been my salvation. That's been my guiding light, if you will, is to know how to
0: love. You know, it's interesting you say that because from my own experience as a child uh, and growing up, I kept hoping that there would be this person who would, you know, recognize your worth and come and save you and make everything okay and make you feel good about things. And, uh, you know, as much as I wished for that, it did not happen. And, uh, you know, that sense affects you. And, and I think in experiences like you had and, and others who've had similar experiences, you do recognize that, uh, you have this immense capacity, uh, for love and actually uh, that people actually love you. Uh, and I think so many people, you know, forget this, especially, you know, when they have this, uh, negative self-talk or painful talk to themselves. Uh, it, uh, they sit there with this feeling of inadequacy, and what so many people don't realize, I don't think, is though this is the human dilemma. It's not just them, and I think that's what makes people oftentimes um, feel separate. Is they don't understand that uh, on some level we're all suffering, and understanding that's the nature of reality uh, actually allows you to go forward.
1: Yeah, well, that's the that's the heart of our proud Buddhist practice. And you know, and we need to be fair, of course. That you know, we're privileged white men who have had lots of opportunities. And um, you know, I work with a lot of folks who don't have those opportunities, and there are multiple conditions, multiple wounds that are really hard to find your way through. And so, I don't underestimate the power, the the, the um, how difficult the journey can be, and how devastating. Uh, it can be to live without love for a long period in our life, but it's true that we can resurface it in in ourselves and uh, we can help others to discover it. I think that's true, yeah you know uh, that's you know Sharon you spoke of earlier, and you know she has that beautiful practice, just like me, you know, and um just like me, you have pain, also just like me, you have access to love, yeah
0: yeah, and I think uh, you know those types of practices, you know, can be extraordinarily healing. I think some people just have to get over the hump of being afraid to be authentic because you know, I, I speak a lot as you do, and uh, I tell stories. And uh, you know, sometimes I shed a tear, my voice cracks, which you saw earlier. <laughs> but when I do that, everyone starts crying because I've given them permission. To be their authentic selves and to show uh, themselves, and um, it's interesting. I um, gave a talk one time, and a woman came up to me, and she uh, identified herself as a psychiatrist and hypnotist, and she said, "God, I felt so sorry for you on stage. You know, you you were showing this emotion, and and I, I saw the tear, and you and you must have been so embarrassed." And she said, "You know." If you come to me for three sessions, I can get rid of that for you.
1: <laughs> oh, my. Oh my.
0: And, uh, you know, and uh, I was sitting there going, What kind of a psychiatrist is this? I, I mean, where somebody can, uh, and I'm not saying it's not painful, but you can be present, show your emotions, and it's still, you're okay whenever I have been authentic like that, uh, I've never had anybody come and chastise me. In fact, what happens is everyone wants to hug you. And that's the nature of our humanity, right?
1: Yeah. But, you know, again, uh, we are taught differently. You came up as a training as a physician to be objective, you know, to manage those emotions, to um, put them behind you. And certainly we don't want to treat patients as our therapists, but I've never had a anyone who I was with accompanying in their dining process, you know, tell me to get out of the room because I shed a tear. So I think it, I think this vulnerability that we're speaking to. Mostly we think of vulnerability as being like we're susceptible to harm, right? Emotional harm or physical harm, et cetera. But I think of vulnerability differently. I think of it as openness, um, Mostly, what we know of as vulnerability is our defenses against it, right? The walls that we build around our hearts, etc But I think of vulnerability as something more like being porous or being permeable, is another way to think about it, that allows the beauty and horror of the world to impress itself on our souls, you know, to shake loose the calcification around our hearts in a way. And so to be vulnerable. You know, this is one of the most exquisite human qualities that we have. It it shows us, you know, it allows us to, to really be touched by life. And if we shut down to our grief or our anger or some other quality which we find unpleasant, then we also shut down to our joy and to our love and the compassionate heart that you speak of so often. So, I, you know, I, I think to be vulnerable, to be human is to be vulnerable, and, and uh, I'm grateful that I have the capacity for that experience. Um, and I think it gives rise to courage, actually, to be vulnerable.
0: No, I think, I think you're right. I, I, people who are able to be vulnerable, to show themselves, and not be afraid of being judged, I think... That is a strong person versus people who try to keep it together, never show emotion. because, again, uh, our strength as human beings, actually, I think, relate to your vulnerability and uh, and being comfortable with that and and being comfortable with yourself. Well, we didn't really cover your book that much or we covered it actually on many levels. <laughs> Uh, but we didn't speak specifically about it. Um, What would you tell someone who is struggling with their own existential crisis of death? And not that it is going to happen today or tomorrow, but as you know, some people start thinking about this, especially as they get older and older. What would you recommend that they do to garner insight or be comfortable in the process of dying?
1: Oh, it's a big question, of course. I think of a few things, Jim. One is that we can scare the hell out of ourselves with the idea of dying. And, um, you know, for years, I was kind of overzealous about getting people to accept the dying process. I'm not so much so now. I don't know exactly how we prepare for dying. I know that we can use the specter of death as a way to show us how to live our life really fully. And that may be the best preparation for dying, a life fully lived. I think we can look in our lives at the way we meet endings. How do we meet the end of a day, the end of a relationship? Exhale. You know, do we micromanage it or do we have some trust that um, the way something, the way we meet an ending shapes the way the next thing emerges? So I think it has, I think what can help us is getting really close to the truth of impermanence, to the truth of constant change. Then death doesn't take us by surprise so much. Everything's coming and going all the time, all the time. I was in Japan a year or two ago with my friend, Joan Halifax. And, and we happened to be there at the height of cherry blossom season. And the hillsides are covered with these beautiful, fragile flowers that last just for a week, you know. And there's this other place I teach in Idaho where there are these blue flax flowers outside of the cabin where I stay that last for a single day. And, and, you know, the question I always want to ask is why are those blue flax flowers, why are those cherry blossoms so much more beautiful and radiant than plastic flowers that last forever, I think it's because there's something about the brevity of their lives that invite us into their wonder and their beauty and and give rise to gratitude in us. So I, I think that Knowing that your mother's treasured vase is going to fall off that shelf someday and smash, you know, that your roof's going to leak, that people you love will die. Reminds us to not take this life for granted, to to step into the precariousness of it and there to recognize the preciousness of this life. How remarkable it is to be born and to have a human life and to then appreciate it not out of guilt but out of joy
0: you know boy life's
1: led that way what a good preparation that is you know
0: no i think you're you're right i i mean i i think understanding the preciousness of of life and the transient nature i'm sure you're probably familiar with the concept of wabi-sabi right this impermanence imperfection and incompleteness and i think that uh when you embrace that as a reality, then uh, at least for me, it, it, uh, it gives me some solace and I don't struggle as much.
1: Yeah. I mean, suppose we embrace that truth in our life all the time. You know, I think that, you know, not only might we have an easier time meeting our own dying, but I think it'll make us kinder to one another. I think it, it helps us to see ourselves in each other, you know? And when that happens, the way in which we care for one another fundamentally shifts. You know, knowing that the people we love will die reminds us how do we want to care for them now? How do we want to tend to this relationship now? It's not to scare us. It's to encourage us to, to recognize what it is that, has, that matters most. Yeah.
0: No, I think that's uh, exactly right. And I, I think if you just sit with that, you know, what is it that really matters the most? Um, you realize there's so many things that are actually insignificant that we uh, feel are very important at the time, but it always comes down, I think, to that, what matters the most. I, I like having a conversation with you.
1: It inspires me. Thank you for willing to engage me in this. I learned a lot today.
0: Oh, well. (laughs) Uh, Well, that's very kind of you. I appreciate that. And I'm sure hopefully the listeners will have learned a lot from uh, you as well. I really appreciate you spending a little bit of time with me. And I do want to uh, encourage people if they haven't to uh, take an opportunity to purchase your book, The Five Invitations, which at least uh, I found very powerful. And uh, I hope we have the opportunity to speak again in person or and certainly not in the too distant future.
1: I'd like that a lot, Jim. And thank you for inviting me. And I hope my words and yours have been of some small support to the people who listen.
0: Yes, I hope so. Well, take care, my friend. Thanks again. You're welcome. Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts, or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com.